Today we're going to continue our discussion of truth, and I have a little bit that I wanted to carry over from last week's discussion that I had in mind when I came up with the topic, but we didn't end up getting around to discussing it in the detail I imagined during uh, that episode. So the idea I have in mind is that <clears throat> there's this trope in storytelling, but it's also it's more than that, but I think it's best explained as a trope in storytelling. That you have, say, the main character or the hero or whatever else, and they have access to the secret forbidden knowledge, something that society doesn't know. But most of the people that they encounter think that it's best that that knowledge is not exposed to everyone, that it's it would be bad if people learned this thing. But nevertheless the hero finds value in people knowing it regardless, and they think that it's for this greater good beyond uh, what people feel is in their best interest in the short term. And eventually, usually as the arc goes, the hero exposes this knowledge to society, and then somehow things are better in the end. Uh, it can vary story to story, obviously. <laughs> but... The thing that uh, I want to pull out of this idea is that there's something just naturally good about the truth. And even if people think that it would be bad to hold the truth from people, or sorry, even if it would, people think it would be bad to have people know the truth about something, uh, they think it's best for them to believe some fiction. Uh, there's this underlying feeling, this intuition this idealized form of uh, courage against the tyranny of societal forces that people should know the truth. Does that sound like a like a coherent idea, like something that does exist in storytelling and as a popular concept in general? I I think so. Do you have any examples of a story as this? Oh yeah, plenty. Uh, let me think of a good one. Um, a story where there's some forbidden knowledge that the hero is exposing to people, but people don't want to know it right away. Yeah. I probably should have come up with an example <laughs> beforehand. <laughs> Do you have one in mind? <laughs> no. no. Oh. Uh, I know this is a common trope, but I just have to think of a story. I mean, it reminds me of like civil rights figures who expose uncomfortable truths in order to move society. Maybe um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, the book. Hmm. Uh, apparently did a lot to uh, supposedly uh, expose the conditions of 
waves and then uh, it raised awareness of of the issue in the in the north. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that that's a reasonable example. So it's it's a facet of forbidden knowledge that there's this uncomfortable truth that people might be vaguely familiar with, but they don't want it to be out in the open. They don't really want to think about it. But the hero or the point of a moral arc would be to force people to reckon with this uncomfortable truth. Yeah. But I I don't wait, but I don't know. I think what's the what does the uncom- uncomfortable or forbidden knowledge part add in that case? I I think I don't know if uh I think you want to make a different point. I think that what it's well, in that story or that sort of thing, there's definitely more to it than just the the forbidden knowledge part. There's also the like <laughs> uh justice for people in general part. But the thing that I'm trying to extract is that there's something inherently good to people not being ignorant. For people to uh ignorant uh intentionally or unintentionally people should be exposed to the truth and should know the truth yeah uh and that idealized form of the truth and that people should know it is not necessarily linked to whether people are better off for knowing that truth Okay, yeah, uh, I think there's a quote from, uh, I think Socrates, something that's like, it's it's better to be a unhappy man than a happy uh, pig, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> right. It, it, it's better, yeah, to be unhappy, but have knowledge than ignorant and happy. Uh huh. There's a there's an idea of ignorant bliss, right? Where not knowing something can actually lead to benefits in your life. Uh, and there could be argument about whether those are superficial or short term benefits. But there's an idea that there's a trade off between the truth and what's good, or at least seemingly good. Yeah. And I think that this applies more specifically to the kinds of things you're talking about last week when it comes to science. Because uh, I think that most scientists would hold the conviction that knowledge for the sake of knowledge is important. It doesn't need to be justified by having a particular use case or to be uh, applied to save human lives. There's value just in researching and finding out new information in general. Yeah. And to some informal degree, this can be a fine idea, I suppose. That it's like, well, I'm interested in it, so I think it's important. Uh, and it's as, it goes as far as that. But it seems that there is more to it than that. And it's employed to mean more than that. That it's, it's a structural justification for how scientists think of their self in society and in life. That a lot of the value they bring is in the form of knowledge 
specifically true knowledge. <laughs> yeah. I think this is something I disagree with the platitude on. I, I guess, I, I, yeah, it's like a common belief, I guess, that it's good to just, knowledge is kind of good for its own sake. Um, mm-hmm. Science should just stack up the the facts and discover more facts just because because that's an inherently um, good thing yeah exactly and i i think that's not really right i I think yeah i think if science just discovered arbitrary truths um just truths uh uh for the sake of discovering truths then uh, I think it would we would waste a lot of time, basically, and uh, it's also not uh, really how science works. I think um, utility does play uh, you know some role in directing how researchers work, um, research that yeah might lead to some sort of utility. Uh, gets pursued more often than uh, than you know a similar type of research that doesn't have the utility. But uh, there's also uh, you know interesting uh, research or people pursue knowing more about things that are interesting. And I think it's also you know different from just finding things that are true. So. Yeah, in that sense, you know, there's a lot of values other than truth that are important for doing science, I think. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I suppose that if you just went through every uh, sentence in order and then checked whether they were true or not, you could find out a lot of true things. (laughs) Yeah. You you just went through every string of letters in alphabetical order. Yeah, and you could just make up infinite numbers of true things about letters and numbers easily. <laughs> yeah, and, and some people do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think like like math is becoming like the you know, more and more math just <laughs> it's getting to be a bigger field and a much more disparate field and all the the specialties are getting much more specialized and it almost yeah, it seems like it's not one field anymore almost and you know so far in the history of math there's been periods where we've talked about this like in during the Burbaki group era where there has been a consolidation uh, in math and there's been you know these amazing innovations uh, repeatedly where <clears throat> um, some insights like tie together the major uh, areas of math basically and so yeah so so far somehow these different pursuits of knowledge have led to a coherent enterprise but i think it's maybe possible that that won't be the case um and i guess if that doesn't happen um if it's if it actually is the case that we have all this kind of trivial useless research then 
um, kind of the idea that true things, that it's worth your time to pursue true things just because they're true, maybe doesn't make makes less sense. I think that there's two sides to this. So when you were talking before about how research that has more use cases, uh, maybe to say it simply, is going to be researched more often. So it's not purely just looking for true things. But I think that uh, it's more that not necessarily what ends up getting researched, but what the intentions are of the researchers. So if you are researching something just because you think it has a good use case, but you're not interested in it at all, there seems to be something lacking there. I think it's more that people think of research as, well, I'm interested in this thing, and then if it happens to have good use cases, then I'll get funding for it. And the funding part is separate from what I'm interested in researching. I think that's a large part of it. Um, but I think when they say, you know, I'm interested in this area, I think a large part of how they come to be interested in certain things has to do with uh, the utility of things. And also, you know, with other characteristics like the depth or the complexity or whatever, whatever interesting feature of their field. But so, say a medical researcher um, is doing research, and may, maybe they find, you know, some obscure disease that uh, five people on Earth have. Maybe they find that, you know, intellectually very interesting. But I think that's not, you know, that's not the usual case. I think in general, people find uh, find that it's interesting to work on things that. Uh, have an impact on a large number of people like cancer and um, yeah part of what makes them interested in cancer research is that cancer research uh, has practical utility and not just it's not just the intellectual interestingness of of cancer <laughs> that makes them interested in, in cancer yeah, and surely there's a variety of different reasons that people uh, will cite for why they're interested in researching cancer or whatever else. You can imagine maybe if people become a algebraic topologist, then it might be more a matter of the interestingness of the ideas as opposed to their utility that <laughs> <laughs> drove them into that field of research, right? Yeah, I, I think there's also you know another kind of utility, which, which is like, Furthering your career, you know, uh, mm. algebraic topology could further your career and you research that. But there's, yeah, of course, also something inherent to some fields that make them more interesting to some people than other fields. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there isn't like this collapse of people into just the most useful things to research. People do tend to research things not just because of how useful it is, but Surely, yeah. I mean, how yeah, useful it is it math. plays a part in it. A large part, I would definitely be willing to admit. And, and it depends on the field. Yeah, in pure math, I, I think the connection is pretty weak between utility and and the different fields. It's, you know, uh, other factors play a larger role in pure math than in uh, biology, let's say. Mm-hmm. 
Remember the paper we wrote, the Rogaway paper? Yeah. Do you remember his argument about how it's, uh, well, he would say it's immoral, but maybe just simply it's bad for researchers to pretend as if there isn't this larger context to them researching. So they can't just research what they're interested in and uh, what they find to be important. Yeah. And we were critical of that. We thought, well, why not? Why can't researchers be in this abstract realm? Oh, well, I I don't remember that being my position, but I I think I was mostly critical of the political uh, characterization of, uh, of what he thought researchers should prioritize. Um, so he thought like you know some specific ideas in cryptography were more likely to be useful to or more more likely to be important um to people uh or good good for people and that research that is um good for i guess the government or corporations uh, was not good to pursue i thought that was kind of silly right okay okay yeah that's good to recall that uh bring it back to this topic the way that i'm thinking about it in total is to try and parse out where the distinction is between something being worthwhile to learn because of its usefulness and uh, well uh so that opposed to it being worthwhile to learn because is intrinsically a good thing to know. And I think that there's definitely going to be some correlation between how strong the connection is between (laughs) your field and the usefulness of it. Uh, Maybe pure math being an example where the connection is very weak and something like, uh, I don't know, engineering being where the connection is extremely strong. So the question is... uh, Does the intrinsic value of knowledge matter at all? Is that just like a fiction that people are telling themselves, uh, which seems to be pretty popular, but is completely empty? Or is it actually important? Or is it not actually important, but it's good for people to believe that it is? So there's those three options. Uh, It's kind of ironic that... We're talking about this in this way. I think <laughs> what, what we've done has been pretty disconnected from any idea of of the utility <laughs> or eventual utility of what we're pursuing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, obviously we, <laughs> we believe in uh, that things can be intrinsically interesting. Well, uh, I think that's an interesting question. Is that what you believe? Wait, but how else would you explain everything we've done? Well, here's the sort of uh, story you can tell about the, say, you know, pure math analogous things where the utility of the research is not very closely connected to the actual research itself. 
like you're studying Ramanian hypersquares and you don't know if that's ever going to be used in some quantum mechanics simulation a hundred years in the future, right? But <clears throat> I think that the story that you can tell about the situation is that there is a connection, but it's just extremely hard to predict uh, in some of these cases. And overall, it, there is still such a connection there, and it's fine for there to be that connection there. And it's important for things to be researched because that connection uh, will produce utility. However, it's so difficult for individual people to make sense of that connection that you need some other justification to get people to do the research. And it will just evolve naturally that since you don't have this justification in terms of directly explaining usefulness, but the utility still exists, so it's good for it to be researched anyway, there's going to be something like it's useful for the sake of knowledge itself anyway. So you have this ethereal appeal, like, you know, it'll be uh, useful in general, and maybe you sort of hint in the future it might be used for something interesting, even though I can't ever say what it's going to be. Yeah, I, I guess I, I would have set up the question a little differently. Yeah, I, I mean, it's not that there isn't a link between uh, the research that mathematicians find interesting and the utility of of the research. It's just that I, I think we're talking about different motivations. Yeah. So whether mathematicians yeah, pr decide to pursue a particular thing because they find it interesting or because they think it'll be useful to society. Yeah, that is what I meant, so that's good to clarify. Yeah. So when I think about what we're doing, how I imagine it is that, well, I can't think of the exact way that this is going to be useful, but I find it a good heuristic to look at the things that I'm interested in, and that'll be useful in some way that I can't predict, but I have a heuristic that it will turn out net benefit in the future in terms of usefulness. I don't have to keep re-justifying it to myself each time. Like, okay, why am I uh, going to talk about this on the podcast? Oh, it's because I have this heuristic that's going to say, well, it'll probably be useful in the future. It's just that, okay, well, I figured that out, so now I can just use the heuristic. Oh, but but that's not your motivation for doing the podcast. Or, like, I mean, like, uh, for us, like, on, in, on what we do uh, in school as well, like, you know, when you decide to take particular classes or um, choose, yeah, an area of research, uh, you don't. I would say that's or, my or reasoning. the podcast. What's your reasoning? My reasoning is that the things that I'm interested in are a good heuristic for the things that are going to be useful for me to know. No, no, I. I'm talking about your motivation. It's not your motivation. Um, uh, your motivation isn't uh, just to choose what's um, going to be useful in the future. I think you're choosing to do what you find interesting. Uh, and that's independent of what things you think are going to be useful. Oh, yeah, sure, but... After I uh, figured that that was the way that I was making decisions, I made a post hoc rationalization that I was doing it because it turned out to be useful. <laughs> oh, well, so, okay, it's so it's a, a wrong post hoc. <laughs> so it's a wrong analysis. 
potentially, yeah. Well, if your if your analysis is that oh, I chose to do this thing because I, I thought that it would be useful, then I think that would not be accurate. Yeah, I guess I was kind of making a joke, but the way that I think of it developing over time is that that's definitely what my initial uh, motivations were. Is like what's just the most interesting thing to look at and that's what i'm going to look at and there wasn't really else much else to it but after learning a certain amount of things and getting a sort of basis of what's out there then it gives me a lot more opportunity to think about well there's so many things that i could look at how am i going to decide what to look at and it's not just a matter of looking at new things now it's like okay i have to actually make a decision about what to focus on so in that way I am employing a bit of this utilitarian calculus that is like, okay, making use of my interests now and what I know, how can I make the best decisions of what to learn next to be useful? Yeah, I'm, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I think there's these two different types of motivations for doing things. And, and I don't think either one collapses into the other one. Mm-hmm. But I do think of the idea that knowledge for the sake of knowledge is good. I think of that as a heuristic. And I think that it's a heuristic on an interpersonal level. It's not a heuristic on a personal level because it's totally possible that someone has interests that are just completely unuseful. Right? <laughs> but I think that in an aggregate it's going to be more useful for people to pursue what they're interested in as opposed to things they're not interested in. Seems like more of an observation than a heuristic. Um, okay, yeah. You can heuristic say like is that. a tool that people... Heuristic is a tool that people use to make decisions. Yeah, okay. I think this is an an interesting point. Uh, the way that I'm thinking about it is almost like abstracted from people. It's more just describing the system. So it's like the system is trying to maximize usefulness, and then it developed this heuristic called interestingness, and it's using that in order to maximize usefulness. But you're right that it's not something, a heuristic that people use personally. So it it's different in that way. And I probably am confusing people listening by <laughs> using that terminology so describing it as an observation or a trend that that seems right yeah yeah i think you're ascribing like an ontology uh no it's not the word you're ascribing intention to the system uh, uh yeah by using that term i i've with my experience of the term, especially using it like an AI context, I think that uh, you don't need to imply uh, intention, but I think that I'm totally willing to use more clear terminology in a general circumstance. So, yeah, calling it a trend or an observation, that's better. So it's this this trend of thinking that uh, truth is good on for its own sake. Uh, that is a, going to be correlated with what is actually good yeah i'm yeah i i agree with that i I mean in math that's like i think it's so 
nuclear. It's <laughs> pretty. Cr- I mean, it's pretty crazy the history of Ma. Yeah, yeah, that's or a good point. Basically, all of the major, like, really big advancements, like these abstract areas that um, became huge in, in the mathematical community, ended up being very useful. For completely different reasons than the mathematicians were interested in them. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of times, yeah, those applications were discovered, you know, way after... Uh, the the mathematicians had passed away right yeah you know I I think we might as well go back to the original example um that your prompt alludes to oh yeah Uh, uh forbidden knowledge is you know it's the garden of Eden story right oh yeah so Adam and Eve God created, you know, the earth and he created Adam and Eve and a bunch of animals, put them in a garden and he told them uh you can have all all, the, all this fruit and uh I gave he gave uh, Adam a companion and you can uh be fruitful and multiply. You know, it's a nice nice situation, but don't eat from uh the tree of knowledge uh because it's forbidden i think that's how the story goes might be missing some details <laughs> and then yeah and then a serpent basically <laughs> uh tempts uh eve into uh-huh. uh grabbing grabbing a bite uh saying that it'll make you wise it'll make you like a god um so what the serpent says and yeah she she grabs the fruit and eats it with adam yeah she, and that's she why convinces they adam of... to eat the fruit with her because you know it's a terrible yeah. conniving woman <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's why they get kicked out of the garden of eden uh-huh yeah oh man this is a whole new rabbit hole to go down <laughs> to analyze this story forbidden knowledge but yeah you're right that does relate to how i phrase the prompt this uh this knowledge that it seemed almost obviously better to be without and in the bible story is like definitionally better because you know there's (laughs) god's will (laughs) yeah and and the fact that you know once they ate it they got kicked out of basically paradise and had to uh women had labor pains and men had to work all the time and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we we really uh suffer in the consequences here. <laughs> and yeah, in this case, yeah, I gave them knowledge of good and evil and it seems like it kind of the serpent was kind of right. It made them godlike in that respect. It gave them a newfound perspective. But it's yeah. like, yeah, that's a that it. I mean, that's man's original sin, right? But and it's yeah, it's the reason man falls from paradise. But that's I don't know the way we were just talking about it. Um, 
it seems like we were pretty uh, pro-truth. And like the quote that I refer to, you know, people think that it's better to be, some people think it's better to be uh, knowledgeable than than uh, ignorant and happy. Which kind of, it kind of goes against the whole point of the Adam and Eve tale. Hmm. Yeah. Seems like. It is kind of interesting that it's the tree of knowledge. It's not just like the tree of not knowing good and evil. It's the tree of knowledge. <laughs> knowledge <Yeah>. in general. <laughs> yeah. Which includes knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. Yeah. And the serpent was like, he's kind of right, right? Right. Like, in what in what way did he deceive uh, Eve? Almost. Huh, yeah, but I haven't really thought of it that way before. It is posed as and, a deception that he tricks Eve into it because he's the, I think it's that the serpent says, you're not going to die if you eat the apple, right? Because God said that you would die if you eat the apple. Oh, I, no, I don't think he said that. Really? I thought that was part of it. Or or did he? You sh- I, I think, oh, you shall surely perish, something like yeah. that. And I thought that was a particular point that the snake makes, is that, no, you're not going to actually die. Uh, okay. I guess, yeah, I... I'll have to go back to the <laughs> language sometime. Recently, but I, I I don't remember the word. I I thought he said perish, but I don't know if that means die. Oh, hmm. okay. Yeah, I would assume it meant die, but yeah, maybe it does mean something else. I mean, yeah. I, well, if he said that you won't die, then he was also right about that. Yeah. I mean, if and God, he was right that it made them more godlike in a sense. Right. I think the godliness of it was that now they had some say in good and evil, something like that. Well, they had an awareness of it. Yeah. And they acquired self-awareness. Right, right. They recognized that they were naked. Mm-hmm. And then they had to wear clothing. Like isn't like the the uh, the basic idea? I don't know where this quote really, but the idea that it's better to be a man unsatisfied than a pig unsatisfied, whatever. I, that just that just says you should eat the apple, right? That's the so that's like the whole point of the adage. Yeah, didn't you say that was from Socrates? I I. I I'm guessing, but I don't. I don't really know. Okay. Yeah, I guess then that would have been a maxim that came after Adam and Eve were born. Because <laughs> you know there was uh, only one before then. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, and the stories were written uh, before. Yeah, well before. Greece. Oh, oh, wait. It was. Oh, ah, uh, you know what? 
Oh, sorry. I have an idea, but you continue. Oh, yeah. I, it looks like it was John Stuart Mill. Oh, really? The phrasing that I found it. Yeah. Okay. But I thought, yeah, I thought, I mean, yeah. I mean, so with Socrates, like, the, the, it would be like the unexamined life is not worth living, right? Right, yeah. Similar, similar <laughs> idea. Something like that. Yeah, I mean, that that's a quote, right? The unexamined life is not worth living. Yeah. So I think that's a similar idea. Something like that, or like something, the <laughs> the contrapositive that the examined life is the only life worth living or something. <laughs> but what I was thinking of is, I, I can't believe I didn't think of this before, but an example of a story that is expressing this forbidden knowledge archetype is... Uh, 1984, right? Uh, okay. Oh, and also another one would be the story of the the Spanish Inquisitor in uh, Brothers Karamazov. Oh, I, I don't know that story. Okay, I can I can say the 1984 part first, which is that so the the sort of world leader, right? He is the one that keeps all these books of, uh, like, the culture of human life uh, from the before times. <laughs> and he enjoys them himself, but he thinks that it's bad for other people to know them. Yeah, I, I, don't, I think it's... 1984 isn't that interesting of a book for me, <laughs> or a story, or an example, I, I think. Um because the morals are just so it's just i don't know it's just so obvious right like oh, oh okay yeah. in that case knowledge is good end of story but the idea behind it is that you can imagine this society where the idea that containing knowledge and procuring it in just the right way so that it makes a the best society possible that is something that can be taken to this extreme Uh, okay, but but then the idea of the book is just you shouldn't do that. <laughs> well, you should be wary of when people try to do that. Yeah, I I think the interesting an interesting story is one where knowledge is hidden, but and it actually works um, to promote the overall good. Oh, okay. Here, how about this one then? There's uh, well, two Ender's Game, right? So in Ender's Game. They keep the knowledge from him that the simulations that he's fighting are actually real battles. And he's essentially saving humanity by fighting these battles. Right? Yeah. But if they told him what they actually were, then he wouldn't do it. And there would be a lot more human life lost, presumptively. Yeah. Do you think that's a good example? Yeah. Because at the end of the story, it's exposed and it's basically treated as like this terrible thing that ender was deceived in this way even though it saves so many human lives i i I don't know if it i don't know if it's treated as a horrible thing but it's shocking to i think it's shocking to ender but i think he recognizes that he saved humanity as well i mean yeah it, it was a good thing it seems like it was probably a good thing to hide the knowledge uh, assuming 
saving the human human race is a good thing. <laughs> yeah, I guess that but, given that but, premise. But, yeah. So then it does I mean, fit but your the book example. makes that the book makes that premise ambiguous because it humanizes the the aliens. Yes, the buggers. Yeah. And the book series beyond that do a bit more. But yeah, within the Ender's Game story, I think you could say that's an example where uh, it seems like a good thing that they kept the knowledge from him. Yeah, I, I think, I mean... It was tough, right? And there's a lot of questions about it, but it saved a lot of human lives, undeniably. Yeah, and well, yeah, that part is undeniable. And then, yeah, it seems like I, I, it seems like you could probably justify that behavior. So I suppose that the the question that I'd want to pose is, is the reason, say, from Andrew's perspective, is the reason that it's bad that he was deceived because deception is bad? Or is it mostly because of the aliens that he was killing? <laughs> what? What was that? Is there something inherently bad about him being deceived the way he was? But, didn't we, but we just replied that there... But, but, uh, it was overall okay for him to be deceived, right? Overall, yes. But was there anything bad about him being deceived? Or was it just strictly plus sides? Yeah, I mean, it seems like a... Because it seems um, to be a contention here, right? It's, it's not like, well, there isn't anything bad about being deceived, so you might as well just deceive someone if it turns out to be the best thing to do. There seems to be something bad about deceiving people, right? Yeah, I agree. So where does that come from? Uh, I don't know. Uh, well, um, I mean, we've kind of talked a little about this, but uh it's just it's kind of antisocial to deceive people generally mm-hmm. um and you're trusted less and stuff like that yeah it's just i don't know how our intuitions evolved so you just think it's these uh intuitions and maybe machiavellian calculations that being deceiving is a bad strategy for being liked by other people there's not anything inherently bad about deceiving people. Uh, I, I, th- I think it is inherently bad, but I think, I mean, I think the fact that it's inherently bad is, uh, it's just linked to the reasons that <laughs> it's, uh, it's perceived as bad. They're kind of the same thing. So you think that it's inherently bad because it's perceived as bad, that that's just what it is to be inherently bad? I think it's bad because it because of the reasons that it is treated as bad by people. But those reasons are there's different reasons. Um I guess that maybe there's the reasons that people give for why they treat it badly. And then there's the more descriptive reasons that it's like antisocial, right? Yeah. Uh, 
I'd include both. But people might say that uh, deception is bad because it's a sin or something, right? Yeah. So you think that's why deception is bad? Because it's a sin? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't quite understand. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just say that the reasons you think it's bad is because of the reasons everyone thinks it's bad. Uh, well, the reasons that, um, that lying is perceived as bad is not just the reasons that people give. I, I, I'm in, including all reasons, and that includes the other historical factors that we talked about. Right, but the reasons that it is bad do not include all of the reasons why it's perceived as bad. Uh, okay, uh, hmm. Uh, how come? Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> people have lots of reasons why they, they treat it as bad, which may be wrong. No, I, okay, that's... They may come up with silly reasons, but that's not the actual reason that they think that lying is bad. The real reason is that is uh, these deeper factors that brought society to a point where lying is seen as a bad thing. Ah, okay. So through some maybe evolutionary psychology or just society progressing, these sorts of things makes them come to a state of mind in which they think it's bad and the particular reasons they give for their state of mind are not very relevant yeah okay yeah that's the way that i would think of it as well although i think that there's another level of analysis where you ask the particular reasons why people give that they treat it as bad In the same way that like, we were discussing intentions have something to do with whether or not an action is moral. Yeah, but I mean... Uh, sure, in some cases. But, but I think lying is... I don't know. If there's something inherently wrong about lying, then that's, it's always wrong regardless of intention, seems like. I guess lying has a, inherently has something to do with intention, though. Like, <laughs> if you lie accidentally, it's not really a lie. It's more of just saying something false. <laughs> well, uh, well, if it's not lying, then that's, that's not what we're talking about. Right, but what I'm saying is, like, it might just be a, uh, what would you call it? Not synthetic, but um, analytic. analytic truth, because all lies have to be intentional. Uh, sure, but you can get you can justify your lying through you can rationalize it through different means through different ideas. Yes. Like it's okay for me to intentionally lie here because of. 
because it would be good in the long run or whatever. Mm -hmm. Okay, where are we going from here? <laughs> there was a... I, I think we should talk about forbidden knowledge. Okay. Relating to that then, actually, the other story that I mentioned was from the brothers Karamazov, and it's about the Inquisitor. Uh, and what happens? I, I you must have heard the story uh, from somewhere. I'm actually reading the book right now, but I haven't oh, gone to okay. that point. Here, I'll just give you a very brief, like two sentence summary of the story. Then it's not important the details really, but the premise is that um, we're living in medieval Europe, and there's the Inquisitor who has this extremely tight uh, Catholic control over the country, and it turns out that Jesus comes back uh, from the dead. And everyone knows that he's Jesus just instinctually. So there's no doubts about that. And the Inquisitor brings Jesus to him and basically tells him what a terrible position Jesus has put him in, trying to basically keep everyone uh, deceived about what the truth is in order to control them and in order to prevent them prevent them from destroying everything and it's jesus's fault for putting him in this position because he gave them the freedom to do this he gave them the truth and he has to to protect them from the truth so it's kind of the ironic uh, position is that the inquisitor is like extremely angry at jesus hmm and the Inquisitor feels like he has to undo Jesus's work. I, I yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't get the dilemma. <laughs> okay. But I mean, the dilemma is that if people know that they have this freedom, then they're going to wreak havoc on the world. So. The Inquisitor has to keep them in this strict control and tell them lies about what God wants in order to keep them in order. Okay, I, I think I'm I don't I'm just missing a lot of details. Okay. Like what freedoms, but I, I think we should talk about something else. Sure, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's probably better if you've read it already. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, so forbidden knowledge. You would imagine a story where there's this thing that people have discovered or whatever else, and they decide this is too dangerous for people to know about. So we just have to keep it secret. And I think that intuitively that seems like a bad thing, but you wouldn't really trust them. And you think that that is a dishonest or deceitful thing to do to keep it a secret. Uh, we should talk about examples and I mean the Garden of Eden story that's an example right of that idea oh okay so you want to continue with this example yeah alright it's an example right oh yeah yeah I agree this is 
almost like the original example. <laughs> wait, so, wait, so is it a... Um, <laughs> should the knowledge have been forbidden? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's kind of, there's a lot of details that I'd have to calculate that I just don't know. <laughs> there's not, wait, it's a pretty simple story though. There's not that many details. Okay, just given the way that you've told it, uh, I would say that it was a bad thing for the knowledge to have been given or however else taken and uh, received by Adam and Eve. Uh, oh, so the knowledge should have been hidden? Yeah. I mean, okay. it almost seems like a premise, right? It would be better for <laughs> everything else. Was, everything was better except for them not having the knowledge. So. Okay. And I don't think there's any intrinsic value to knowledge. So therefore, it was better <laughs> when things were better. What do you think? Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a little skeptical, but that's definitely, you know, that that's seen by the church as the original sin. It's like the sin to rule all sins. It just, and it's the reason why man suffers. And it's definitely, you know, kind of all of Christianity seems committed to the to the idea that um, it was a sin to go against God and uh, gain knowledge. But Indeed. And uh, Jewish people as well. <laughs> yeah. And, and it seems a little odd because it's also the founding... I don't know. It's, kind of, it's the founding story of a religion. And it seems like you'd if it's, I don't know, if you're talking about um, the founding of the world and of humanity, there's, I, I think there's something compelling that, I mean, it, there's something obviously compelling to me, but uh, t even to people who are religious, um, I mean, even because without the the original sin, Jesus doesn't come back either, right? None of that happens. So it's like, I don't know. Well, are uh, we uh, I'm not sure what we're debating. Are we debating the validity of the religion <laughs> or are we debating this, like, you know, the fable fantasy story? Um... I was kind of taking a lot of premises in that, like, <laughs> this actually is a dilemma, not, like, some made-up fable <laughs> in order to make the judgment I made. Uh, wait, it is a real dilemma, though. Well, if I think that, that well, actually, the story has been told incorrectly. It was actually something completely different was going on, uh, and it's just a make-believe fable to say it the way that you described it. That would be different, but... If we assume that that actually was the case at one point, that Adam and Eve really did exist, 
and we were given this dilemma, then I would say what I said. Wait, what difference does it make? Well, it could be possible that there are details missing from the story. Like, well, what if uh, actually Eden wouldn't have been so good as God said it was because God was lying about that. Uh, oh, well, I mean, I mean, the details as given are, it's, it's just Eden was perfect. Yeah, so I'm saying that's my premise. Well, I mean, oh, that's, yeah, that's, the, I mean, that's the setup. Uh, whether it's true or not, that's the setup. Yeah. Yeah. But it seems like the things you were bringing up were like questioning the premises. Uh, no. I mean, uh, no. I mean, uh, well, what do you mean? I, I, I don't think I was doing that. What was your point exactly then? Uh, that even Christians find the story of Adam and Eve compelling that it, they are in a sense on the side of Adam and Eve I, I think when they read you know this story but it's just the point is that um, it's just really hard to say whether um, the tree should have been forbidden or not seems like because uh, i mean yeah you could you know take either you could say you know it should it should have been forbidden but even if you say that you know don't you find the other side compelling like the idea that or the the position that adam and eve were put in uh it's hard to condemn that right and it's hard to condemn and or it's and it's hard to totally support the idea that we should uh, withhold knowledge from humans. Oh yeah, I I totally agree, and that is one of the original ideas for this prompt was it seems like a bad thing to withhold knowledge, even if it turns out to have good consequences. Um, so that's the dilemma that I was thinking of. But in this particular story, when you say just to clarify, when you say that. It's a compelling story. You mean that it's compelling for Christians to take the side that Adam and Eve did the right thing? Yeah. Okay. But I think it is the standard that they did the wrong thing, right? Because it's called the original sin, not like the original uh, good move. <laughs> yeah, that's the doctrine. Um, but I, But I think when they read it, I don't think they explicitly say it, but I think when they read it, they, you know, I, I think Adam and Eve are compelling characters, like as in they're easy to identify with and um, <laughs> they can see the appeal of um, eating from the tree of knowledge. Oh, yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. You can, you can sympathize and, or maybe I should say empathize with their position. Yeah. You can totally see their actions as human. So you see it and as applying sympathize. to yourself and <laughs> others. Yeah, and sympathize, I think. So yeah. I think like the the Gnostic reading is probably <laughs> that um, humans sh should have eaten from the uh, tree of knowledge and that God 
was yeah i i guess something like that because they think you know the god is uh is the evil one right so yeah i mean that's like a similar group of people that just ended up with a different reading so what's but demographically they're like the same right yeah this was like a different school of thought around that i suppose yeah and that seems i mean that seems like that's so compelling i mean that seems like a really good reading too like why why do we take it on face value that uh god did the right thing yeah i think that in the context of religion if you're questioning whether to take god being good at face value you kind of uh <laughs> you're questioning a lot of things <laughs> like not just this it's kind of a, a large basis for i mean christianity but other religions as well that god is good <laughs> if you don't think god is good then a lot of other things fail to follow from that yeah but, but i think a lot of i don't know i, I don't know if uh if Jews would endorse the idea that God is good in, in the same way that Catholics would. And I think the doctrine of original sin is largely a Catholic one. Like, I'm sure people beforehand had held a version of it, but uh, it, it, I, don't, I don't think, yeah, it wasn't um, as dogmatic as, you know, as it's been passed down to us. So, you know, we've, obviously we have the stories that are passed on, but we also have this specific reading of the, specific Christian reading of the stories that we've inherited as well. Oh, okay. That That is an interesting point. Yeah, I, I know that this is part of a Genesis. It's the beginning of Genesis, which is in the, the Old Testament, which is a part of the Jewish Bible. So it's in the Jewish doctrine, but I see that your point is it's maybe read in a different way or not as dogmatized as it is in the christian doctrine yeah well i think doctrine i would say is the way in which people read their religious texts Hmm. and uh the scripture is separate from the doctrine i see i guess that another analogous story around the same time is uh pandora's box right that's from greece before oh yeah yeah that's oh that's perfect yeah i mean that's that's like the same idea right yeah the same idea as in it's a woman that causes all the issues (laughs) (laughs) well okay yeah it's like what what was it um what what's who's pandora is she a god um she's like the son of a god or something (laughs) or the daughter you mean you mean daughter yeah demi (laughs) demigod she's a demigoddess and do you remember the story in detail? Uh, I don't remember in detail, but there was some reason that she was instructed to have this box and she wasn't supposed to open it. And then at some point she ends up <laughs> opening it anyway. Like who wouldn't? <laughs> <laughs> but it was a yeah. long time that she didn't open it. She didn't open it up right away. Oh yeah. A long time before she ruined the world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the same idea is there is not exactly the original sin to the same extent but it's like all the issues we have now the ruined world we live in is caused by this event where someone made a terrible mistake and learned something we weren't supposed to know yeah 
that's funny. Like the story seems like the same, but it's it's just that we don't really think of the Pandora story as the story of um, original sin, mm-hmm. unlike the Adam and Eve story. But the, but the, yeah, the story seems like it's the same <laughs> thing. Like she was told not to open this box, and she did. I think that one of the things that came out of the box was like adultery. <laughs> So that's probably a common thing that it was used to explain that story. I wonder if there are similar stories in like, you know, the Hindu tradition and Chinese traditions. I'm sure there are. Yeah, that would that would be interesting to see. So yeah, the Pandora box, so a difference is there's no Satan. She just like convinces herself. Oh right. <laughs> like you know, in in the Garden of Eden, it's like, oh, humans are are basically good, but all, but then there's these uh, there's this evil thing that just hangs around the garden, and it's all, you know, it's uh, it's kind of his fault. Uh, it's partly Eve's fault, but really, it's it's his fault. And then and then there's also this God character. Uh, I guess Pandora. Who wait? Who gave her the box? Uh. I I don't know offhand. This would be something to look oh, up. Okay. Yeah, but okay. So there's kind of, there's kind of a god figure, I guess, that told her not to open it. Yeah, um, she she definitely got the box from a god, mm-hmm. and that god knew about the deal and decided to give it to her anyway. <laughs> Maybe it was a an evil god. Oh. Okay, she and the god just didn't tell her. What's in it? Right. She didn't know it was inside, but she knew that she wasn't supposed to open it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that would have been nice to know <laughs> for him. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I don't. I take it as not the point of the story. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, it's, oh, this is a little off track, but yeah, in in the Bible the temptation is like anthropomorphized into this serpent while in Pandora it's just it's, it's all on her <laughs> the anthropomorphi- anthropomorphization is just the character themselves <laughs> yeah yeah that is a it's a funny point about the bible story though in that the humans they weren't evil it was just that they were corrupted by evil yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't even being tricked exactly, although it seems to be displayed as if it was a ruse. It's more that just they were curious and they didn't know that they didn't know what the good thing to do was. Yeah. Huh. I guess yeah, I don't know. It's like I think it's taught as being that they were tricked and the serpent lied to them, but yeah, my from what I remember I w- I'm not that convinced by that reading, but and if they were tricked, like how big of a sin is that really? Like, <laughs> it, it, is it that bad? Like, uh, is it the original sin? Like, kind of the worst sin ever? If uh, if you're tricked, I don't, that seems like it's God's fault for making creatures that are dumb enough to be tricked so easily. <laughs> like, how is that your own moral responsibility? But. Well, how do you know that this was God's first attempt? 
Uh, wait, but but I mean, even if it wasn't, I mean, he's he made if he made these gullible creatures, that seems like it's his fault. Well, maybe the previous they were gullible. The previous versions were even more gullible, and he had to you know flood those worlds pretty quickly. Oh, then he was even more at fault. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, but okay, go ahead. I I am trying to keep us on track of at least one <laughs> central idea, which is that there is some intuitive force, some moral force to this idea that keeping something secret is bad. And even when you face it with the extreme scenarios like literally paradise, it seems like you can sympathize with the idea that well, you know, we just wanted to know truth was inherently yeah. attractive and i think that even if it's not stated in such plain terms that same sort of idea is played a lot in modern context about people deciding what's good and what's bad yeah I, and yeah my kind of intuitive feeling is that yeah it's uh, i'd rather know what's what's true rather than what's good for me or it's good for people hmm. um and that, it seems like most people think that nowadays but then yeah i, I mean if you get to like the story of virgil sin it seems like <laughs> most people believe the opposite yeah yeah i wonder it, it would certainly be very interesting to look back at the history of what the what people said about that story is because Maybe there is some trend, like, over time, people became more and more sympathetic to these Adam and Eve characters, whereas at the beginning, it was, like, a very important message that this was the original sin, or maybe the other way around. I don't know. Because the way that I yeah. the way that I would uh, approach that story, or that I have approached that story, is that, uh, well, what is this original sin? Well, it's trying to explain what's wrong with the world. Uh, all all these issues that exist in the world, the problem of evil. Why would God allow there to be evil? And the story gives this per- perfect explanation, which is that, well, we know that humans are imperfect. So it was their imperfection that just messed up and caused all these issues. And that's why humans are at fault. Huh. And you can't really blame God because he's God. So there's nothing he did that could possibly be wrong. But, but humans didn't really, I mean, in a, they caused like their downfall, but they didn't cause like the creation of all the issues, right? They were just put out into the world, which was already corrupt instead of being insulated in this little garden. But they, but they created like the issues for themselves because they were transported. Well, I I think that we could go into some Bible study here, of course. <laughs> I think that the world was not like a terrible place. It was just that it wasn't paradise. And then over time, humans made it more terrible by killing each other and stuff like that. Oh, well, okay. I mean, that's a different story, but. Isn't yeah, that I mean, the second yeah. sin <laughs> is Cain killing Abel? Uh. I mean that that's a bad thing that happened, but it didn't really do 
cause anything fundamental. That, that just cursed Cain, but it wasn't didn't really make things that much harder for humans. Mm. It was just being transported out of the garden was hard because they had to grow their own crops, basically, and, and kill their own food. Mm. And that just doesn't change. Right. But, yeah, to, to go... Okay, maybe another way to put the dilemma. If I'm, like, if I'm ever confronted with... Consciously confronted with the decision or the choice of you know knowing something or um not or uh, not knowing something and then getting some benefit from not knowing something <laughs> usually you know all all hold equal usually i'll i guess choose to know but i guess there's some exceptions like um if there's, if I go to a friend's room and my friend leaves for 10 minutes and like their diaries are in the room, like I wouldn't, I wouldn't read it. It, it would just, it would make it, yeah, it would make it very uncomfortable for me if I did read it. So I, and also, I mean, I guess there's the moral part to it. It's probably, it's probably not a good thing. And that that would play a role too, but uh, huh? Yeah. So maybe maybe that's an example of of uh, not knowing is better. But in in general, I would choose to know. But also, I can recognize that if there's like someone who's like an authority that's like directing my education and like everything I know. I think maybe they could structure my my education in a way where I'm never aware of the deception, but the deception is good for me. I definitely I believe that. Sure, yeah, that doesn't seem impossible. But don't don't you find that to be an interesting scenario or not scenario really, but just an interesting thing that you would value knowledge inherently like you would at some point choose to know something as opposed to have some objective benefit that's better. Yeah, but well, but then there's exceptions, right? Sure, but just but that there's general, any case like that. Doesn't that seem weird? Yeah. It's, yeah. I think some of it is kind of a new, relatively new attitude, maybe post enlightenment or hmm. since the enlightenment, and perhaps culturally uh, dependent as well. Yeah, but but then I think you know clearly there's an uh, an innate part of that too. We're just curious. I guess. Mm-hmm. And not to say it doesn't depend on the thing that we're wanting to know the answer to, but it's more like if it was just a matter of us wanting knowledge for like a useful reason, then there should be no cases in which we prefer knowledge as opposed to usefulness. As in, you know, some benefit that 
we know is going to be larger than the benefit of whatever the knowledge is. Yeah, maybe it's uh, it's just it's what curiosity is. So that that would be kind of maybe the evolutionary psychology explanation would be like you know our minds evolve to detect more patterns and incorporate more uh, knowledge, more information, and that's clearly an advantage evolutionarily. Yeah. Yeah, so it might not be an advantage for you personally, but in the aggregate over <laughs> many generations, it turns out to be an advantageous thing to evolve. Yeah. Yeah, and that that does make sense to me, but it, the way when you say it like that, it almost seems like a like a cognitive bias, right? Like we're biased to prioritize uh, novelness or... Uh, knowledge as opposed to usefulness. Yeah. And that seems like something you'd want to counteract, right? Like you want to counteract most biases. Um, Once you become aware of them. But instead, yeah, instead we've um, massively inflated. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Inflated that tendency. Well, I, I guess all and then yeah, but I I don't know. There's some there's I think the good arguments behind inflating them were, or the arguments behind them were good. Uh, and they I guess they maybe a different point, but they ended up being useful. Right. Well, I think that is in the long run. that is the scenario that we are in is that having lots of knowledge does turn out to be pretty useful. So <laughs> we haven't really faced that circumstance as commonly where there's this bad knowledge that to know it would be bad um you could argue for some very particular scenarios like uh like we've been saying but they almost seem like outliers basically like that doesn't seem to be what usually happens so because that's not what usually happens it would make sense that we have this presumption or this bias towards it being usually a good thing yeah but yeah, it seems like, yeah, what I'm coming to is, but it's basically a balance and I could, uh, I could be persuaded in the other direction in some cases. Like, w- would you also, like my example about education, like maybe if I just had no awareness, you know, of the deception and Say I'm learning um, about the logicist project. <laughs> like I'm learning about what? the project to ground the logicist project, uh, logicism. So I'm learning about oh, okay. you know the the attempt to ground mathematics in logic. I think maybe an an interesting way to teach me that would be to not tell me how it goes ultimately and then and then just teach me you know some of the major advances that lead up to the final conclusion where the pro- project falls apart i would be pretty okay with <laughs> having <laughs> the outcome uh hidden from me uh-huh. in advance maybe maybe that's maybe i should just say just stories in general if i'm being told a story i don't want to know the conclusion of the story 
Yeah. Um, until until I'm until it happens. Yeah, this is actually I had this in mind as well. I think just as a quick note, uh, I I would really like to talk about the Nietzsche paper, but would you like to do that maybe later this week or next week? Because I think I would rather yeah. spend like an actual good time on it. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Okay, um, but continue on where we left off here. Yeah, I think that stories are something really interesting to consider here because, or just fiction in general, it's these lies, right? We're telling something that is completely false, yet people really enjoy it. And especially they like information being selectively hidden from them. They wouldn't want to know everything. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And people like being deceived, yeah, in all sorts of sorts of ways uh-huh. like ma- magic tricks um wwe <laughs> although wwe is weird because i don't know if it's it's like self-aware self-deception uh right kfab right <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh ma- magic is like real deception that mm. people enjoy yes oh yeah uh have you heard of uh pen and teller yeah it's it's really interesting listening to them talk about magic because they have a very different view on uh, how magic should be popularized, I guess, where they think that it's fine to tell people how a trick is done, whereas most <laughs> most magicians think that that's very taboo. Like, you should not do that. It'll oh, yeah. very much yeah, destroy the a, value of the trick. Yeah, it's a huge taboo. Like, you can't get into all their clubs if you do yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> And they've been rejected from many clubs for this reason. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's it, uh, one of the things that they point out is like, if you do a trick that is too impossible, then people will believe that it's a trick. But you have to make it just plausible enough that people think like, wow, that's amazing. I can't, I can't think of how they can do that. Uh, one of the, like, to give an example, it's like, imagine there's a stage and there's like two booths and they're like, you know, 40 feet apart. And then the magician goes in one booth and then like, you know, a tenth of a second later jumps out of the other booth. And it's like, whoa, how'd you do that? You teleported, right? And it turns out, though, that in practice, that trick is very bad because it's just totally obvious that you can't do that. So they know there must be like a double or a twins or something to explain it. So it's just completely unbelievable. But if you do something just slightly more plausible, even though it appears impossible, like, you know, hide uh, a rabbit in your hat or whatever, right? And it didn't look like there was a rabbit right beforehand. Well, that's equally something that just can't happen on the face of it. But it's plausible enough that it turns out to be a good trick. Okay. So okay, so it's kind of like the VIV and then it's self for yeah, yeah, exactly. deception. You know that you can't actually Except, appear have rabbits into your hat. Like that just can't happen. Yeah. But it's not something that is so easily explainable by something that has to be the reason. Like it doesn't narrow it down to it has to be twins. Yeah. So well, so the difference between WDAB and magic is that the mechanism is hidden in magic. Yeah. I I guess. In WWE, I imagine that it's also... It's not obvious exactly what they're doing to mitigate the damage they're doing to each other, I suppose. 
it's like presented in a way that it looks like they really are doing what they're doing. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I guess so. If it was obvious, hmm. like if they were wearing padded elbow guards or whatever, then that wouldn't be as interesting. Yeah, but but like intellectually, you know, it is obvious what's happening, which right. is they're just softening their blows. And then magic, it's intellectually unclear what exactly they're doing yeah. to do the deception. And then if you did know like how they're doing it, then it, it would be boring. Perhaps, yeah. I guess that uh, some of Penn and Teller's arguments are like, it can still be interesting, even if you know the trick. Um, and they give some interesting ones. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't know exactly what my conclusion is on that. But there definitely are ones that, like, I looked, like, I watched a YouTube video of a magic trick, and then I looked in the comments and they explained how it happened. And then I watched it again and I'm like, wow, it's still pretty impressive. It's not impressive in that, like, they did something impossible, because obviously they can't do that. It's impressive in the skill that they did in making it appear like they did what was impossible. But most, yeah, okay, I can see that. But most magic tricks are, once you reveal them, they just seem really stupid. Um, Would you say those might be bad magic tricks, though? No, no. I think most magic tricks are are like that. uh, Yeah, even, I mean, good ones and bad ones. Uh. Well, definitely the bad ones, yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think I could find I think some. The magic bad ones can be the opposite. I think I can find some examples where I can tell you exactly how it's done, and you can watch it and still find it really impressive and interesting. Yeah, and and I could find examples of the op other too. Yeah. Okay, that's fair. So maybe some of them are. Sp- Spoilable, say. <laughs> yeah, I. If I were, I would do one if this were in person. But oh yeah, I can't, I can't. <laughs> there's there's one there's one that I do. Sometimes where, I just tell someone to pick a book, or actually to pick a book. Yeah, and then they'll like choose a book, and then I'll, they'll hand the book to me, and I say like, um. No, no, wait, sorry. I'll I'll rephrase them. This uh So I tell someone to uh yeah, choose a book and hand it to me and then I'll keep the book and then uh Damn. And then you picked my card, right? I, I'm not for you. <laughs> this is, uh, wow, I haven't, this is crazy. I haven't done it in a long time. I'm forgetting how it went exactly. But basically, uh, I they t- I skim through the pages, and then they tell me to stop at a certain point. And then, you know, I get the page number, and then I'll tell them to pick a different book, and then they'll go to that page number, and then I'll read the, I'll read to them the first uh, sentence of that page uh, of a book that I hadn't looked at, and it'll be something. But if I no, no, I'll like 
read from memory or like I'll, I'll read it without, I'll say what's on, what's the first sentence oh, on the page okay. right. without reading it. Yeah. Oh. And that it's all, it's always worked when I've done it, but if I reveal it, it's really stupid. <laughs> oh, the only, the only trick is that when I'm skimming the book, the page I stop at is the page that I wanted to stop at. Right. That's a force. Even though they, even though they said stop, and it seems like I stopped when they said stop. Yeah, you, that's the only trick. You just have to stop within a plausible amount of time after they say stop or before. Yeah, and then yeah, say the page number. But sometimes I can stop at the exact page too, because I'll I'll choose like, you know, a pa- a page in the middle of the book. So, and usually they'll <laughs> say to stop somewhere. Unless they're smart and they say stop instantly. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, then I just go, oh, sorry, that didn't work. Or I'll just, <laughs> it's it's pretty easy to disguise that. Maybe you just also memorize a case where there's the beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could do that too. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, okay. But it's, it's every, I mean, it's really stupid when I explain it. But it, it's like totally magical when it works. Yes, yes. Real magic. Well, um, where are we going with this? So the point we were talking with magic tricks and stories, fictions, is that they're false. They're presenting a false image that we aren't even expected to believe. But indulging in the suspended disbelief, we're able to get something out of it, right? Yeah, And I think in the case of a good story, uh, oftentimes what you get out of it might be even described as true or a correct understanding of something. Like, uh, you might say reading a Dostoevsky novel tells you something about human nature, even though nothing in that book was true. Uh, yeah, it wasn't true in the sense that it's... The characters aren't real people. There were no you know. facts that were accurate in that story. <laughs> yeah. But people would say it's, yeah, it has truth, but yeah, it's not a true story. Uh-huh. You, or you could say that. Some other people might say that it doesn't, regardless. <laughs> I, I guess so. I think they'd be wrong. <laughs> I, I understand. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. I think, yeah, Nietzsche talks about, yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, he does. I find it super interesting, though, that Normally, we are extremely annoyed and bothered by falsehoods, right? Like, we see it as antisocial, etc., etc. You don't want to be deceitful. But when it comes to stories, it's all about that. We want to get as much fiction as we possibly can into the story. We don't want to hear about a, like, real-life incident. We want to hear a fictionized version of it. Uh... 
I don't know. I don't think just the fact that it's fiction alone makes it compelling, usually. Because we do read uh, real-life stories as well, and if a fictional story was like just like a real-life story, except that it's fiction, then we would take the real-life story. Okay, so we do have different uh, appetites, sure. So people do read nonfiction, of course, as well. But I think that when it comes to exciting stories, it's just irrefutable that the majority of those that people enjoy are fiction. Uh, I don't, I don't know about that, but my point is, I think what they're getting in fiction isn't um, just the fact that it's fiction. I think the appeal is, you know, it's a good story, probably, or it, um, with the Brothers Karamazov, maybe it, it makes a moral point in an interesting way as well. Um, and it has these, yeah, compelling characters. Um, but that, yeah, but those, uh, things are not, uh, just the idea that it's fiction and fiction is better. Hmm. So like if you could read about these compelling characters, um, the same characters in real life, I think people would take the real life version anytime. Um, hmm. Okay. Yeah, that that's fair, but there certainly is a lot in fiction that you could never have a real life version of, right? Like fantasy and science fiction, all that stuff. Yeah, I think that's why people like fiction. They, they, I mean, usually with fiction, they want it to be as real as possible within... I, well, yeah, like always, basically. They want it to be as real as possible within the constraints of the fiction. So like in Game of Thrones, you know, people love Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, and I heard the actor of Samuel Tarly, like this character um he was there was an interview and he said people complained to me have complained to me about why my character is uh fat <laughs> be, he's very he's very fat be, and you know he's the character that's like running all over the world on horseback and traveling all over the world and stuff like that so it just seems impossible that he'd be fat oh and i think in the books he probably isn't <laughs> Um, and then he says, well, there's flying fire breathing dragons and magic and all this, like, why, why would you, uh, yeah. (laughs) Why is this the thing that, that confuses you? And and he gets a laugh out of it and people are like, yeah, that's so stupid. But yeah, I was like, wow, that is the dumbest answer. (laughs) Well, I think it is missing the point, but I think it's interesting to analyze how it's missing the point. <laughs> yeah, it, well, it's missing the point because within the constraints of the of the fiction, it needs to be as real as possible. Yeah. Um. So, if it's so having a dragon, um, is fine. Um. But if the dragon, if you set, you know, if you say that fire tree, if you say the dragon breathes fire, and then then on the next page he doesn't breathe fire for no explicable reason then that's stupid like you know it should follow uh rules that makes sense Mm -hmm. uh it makes sense as in sort of psychologically makes sense to us 
They're not like total aliens. Yeah. Well, if it's alien, yeah. Well, and if they are aliens, they should be explainable, understandable uh, within the context of the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, so, aliens uh, turn out to be unless there's a, Yeah. So if there's a mechanism in the story that makes it so that people don't lose weight, then that's. <laughs> I, I, that, that could be okay, depending on mechanism yeah i'm sure that'll be in the next book but you know it's just a human character and humans are like humans in every other way right in the, in the book so yeah it makes sense they're not like an elf or something <laughs> yeah if an elf <laughs> uh didn't lose weight that, that would be like oh, okay i guess and also yeah other elves uh had the same uh body <laughs> composition that, that would make sense yeah yeah I'm sure. I'm sure there's a reason behind it they'll come up with in the show. <laughs> oh wait, isn't it over? Yeah, it's oh, over. Okay, never mind then. Anyway. <laughs> yes. Um <clears throat> Okay, yeah, that's a fair point that what people really are going for is a good story, and that doesn't depend on it being fiction or nonfiction. Yeah. But if there was a fictional story that's like I don't know, just like a regular story. Um, people wouldn't read it. Um, basically. Or another way to put it is a lot of nonfiction stories, if, if those were uh, fictional, nobody would care. Right. It's um, Yeah. It's like a lot of biographies. Like, how many biographies... <laughs> If the person didn't actually exist, uh, would be enjoyable to read. Uh huh. No, like, mm, I don't know. I think pro- not that many. But there is something important that often comes along with it being realistic, which is like some sort of coherence, or it has to cohere with your psychology, psychology, in order to understand characters' motivations. And there has to be some understandable, or at least, you know, plausibly understandable reasoning behind what things happen. Things can't just happen randomly for no reason. Yeah. And that seems to have to do with our, what we've learned from reality, where things do have explanations and people do act in certain ways, predictably. Yeah. Yeah. So even if the story is not telling something that actually happened it is talking about humans that actually exist or at least this archetype of human or whatever else like ideas and patterns that that really exist there are i guess there are some stories where it really is ambiguous what's real and what's not Uh uh-huh and people often don't like those stories (laughs) is my impression (laughs) They're like more experimental. Yeah, it's not a common genre. Yeah, I'm reading a book called The Fan's Notes um, by Exley, and the the preface to the book says, you know, this is a work of fiction. All characters in this <laughs> book, you know, don't resemble anyone in real life, especially my wife. <laughs> and then, and then, apparently, the entire book is like pretty much true to life oh okay um 
that's yeah that's what i read online like everybody everybody's name the same thing they were in real life like oh, wow. uh everything that happens in the author's life happens in the book you know <laughs> all that. it's good to have that preface then in case anyone accidentally does <laughs> that yeah now i can't be sued <laughs> oh yeah and it's published as a work of fiction oh. <laughs> that's funny oh well yeah. impressive um i applaud him <laughs> i'm reading a book called uh the story of god or story of god uh love and hate or something is the subtitle and it's a it's like a comedic retelling of genesis from god's perspective <laughs> wait what the heck <laughs> oh that seems like something i would like yeah I'll look it yeah up. you should it's pretty funny i've never heard of that it's uh it's basically like a first person perspective from god <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's pretty enjoyable so far you'll definitely like if you read the first chapter you'll definitely tell if you like it or not yeah that sounds like something I'm like <laughs> i mean because i like gnosticism a lot and gnosticism is kind of it's like it's uh, a yeah. odd rereading of of the biblical origin <laughs> tales yeah and this is another odd rereading <laughs> huh yeah yeah you can put it like that it's uh it definitely it's trying to give God a personality, so it's not treating him as the uh, all-good, opaque black box <laughs> of divinity that he's treated like in the Bible. Okay. It's great, too, because it's like, you know, there's these criticisms of the Bible, uh, like where things are inconsistent or things weird happen that don't make sense. So <laughs> preemptively, God's like, has a reason for why he's doing that it's like <laughs> it's never explained but <laughs> okay hmm. yeah i can't <laughs> i can't uh integrate that into <laughs> since god's not a real person <laughs> Is I don't know. It could be a, a real story. <laughs> well, there's like I don't know more than a billion people that think it is. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe not them, but there's hundreds of millions at least. At least. Well, coming to a close here, then the idea that I was trying to get across, or. Maybe I, sh I shouldn't say that way. It's more like the idea I was trying to explore and that I've come to, in my own opinion, a better uh, idea of is, is there some inherent value to knowledge, to the truth? And I think that basically where I am at now is that there isn't. I think that it's a, it's a good thing to promote people thinking that there is, but I don't think there actually is any inherent value. Oh, I came to a very different. Oh, really? Okay. Or a different conclusion. That's funny. I. I thought, um, I think my natural attitude is to say, you know. Always, pursue the truth, regardless of the consequences. Mm -hmm. But I think, in this discussion, I thought, I came to the idea that. There is this inherent value to truth but there's other values as well and and 
depending on the situation, the other values can be more important than the pursuit of truth value. Ah, okay. So it's a matter of like truth is one thing that's valuable, but it's not the only thing. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, the idea that it's better to be a man. Uh, I, I think, yeah, the quote uh, when I looked it up um, now, it was like, it's better to be Socrates sati- uh, unsatisfied than a pig uh-huh. satisfied. Right. I, I think there's, yeah, um, I guess something to that idea, but may- maybe it doesn't always apply. Um, yeah. It isn't the only deciding factor, so you know, in that dichotomy, whether to be an ignorant pig or a sad Socrates, well, there's more to it than just that uh, difference. There's plenty of other things that would be important in making that decision. Yeah. Well, if yeah. it was ever presented to you. <laughs> that option. <laughs> yeah. And the fact that there like, isn't really that option, I think, is important. <laughs> <laughs> Like, what if you're in a concentration camp and you're under heavy oppression and within the camp you create um, some kind of myth uh, to make it bearable to continue existing? That kind of deception seems like a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I guess we could come up with more examples, but I think we're basically on the same page that there are cases in which knowledge is good and cases when it's bad. Yeah, yeah, in that, yeah. In that case, knowledge is bad in a sense. Like if you were like, yeah, if you were very aware, even more aware of situation you're in then that seems like that would be demoralizing and right. and bad so if you can like somehow justify different parts of your experience and say that it's not as bad as it seems maybe that would be a good motivating thing yeah you sort of are hiding some knowledge from your consciousness you're deceiving yourself and not letting yourself figure out what the truth is yeah yeah. Yeah, and I think that it it's pretty easy now that we've established this idea that you could come up with examples where, you know, <laughs> finding out something is good, knowing something is good or cases where well there's some things that to know them would be bad or deceive to deceive yourself or to be deceived is good. Yeah. Okay, okay so Wait, so what's your position? <laughs> is that your position? Uh, no, I think that that is something that we hold in common and what we have established. So I think that's useful. But I think the further thing is that I don't see if that there is any inherent value to knowledge. I think that it only could have value uh, from its usefulness. And I think that it's plenty of times when that usefulness is not obvious, but I think that even unobvious usefulness could be the only justification. 
Okay. I, I mean, I yeah, I, I have a feeling. I think you're using usefulness to not mean usefulness uh, in a normal sense. Right. Uh, what do you mean? Like by usefulness, if, uh, if truth is, or the pursuit of truth is a good thing for society as a whole, um, over many years, then you would consider the pursuit of truth as a useful thing. Oh, but right, not, yeah. Yeah. So I'm not saying useful in the next year. I'm saying useful in that overall, uh, you know, all circumstances. Yeah, okay. I think that the really the sharp question that I can pose that you've already answered is if you had the option to know something or to not know that thing, but be guaranteed to have more benefit, like a better world, even if only very slightly better, like infinitesimally uh, better than the world in which you knew the thing, but it wasn't that much better. I would always pick the world where it's better, not the knowledge. Uh. Okay. Well, if you knew all of the consequences of each, yeah, decision. exactly. I'm presupposing that. Well, I mean, you don't know them because obviously there's something that you don't know, which you're going to learn. <laughs> but you're guaranteed that the world would be better uh, overall if you didn't know the thing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And I would. In my calculus, I would add the fact that knowledge is inherently good. Right. So, and that would there's some. So, sorry, you continue. Yeah. Yeah, it's just another thing to put on the scale on the opposite side of what what you chose. Yeah. So, under some amount of goodness, if the world was not quite good enough, then you would find that the knowledge would outweigh the goodness. Yeah, some, something like that. Yeah. And I, my position is different because I don't see that ever happening. Which I definitely find super unintuitive and like, before this discussion, I would feel much less uh, about, I would think about this in much the way that you're thinking about it. I would see knowledge as inherently useful. Or sorry, not useful, but inherently valuable, and not only uh, valuable in terms of its uses. And that's where I've come from a lot in like how I approach things. But I'm sort of just trying to like come at it from lots of different angles and finding that the only way to explain knowledge being something that I think is good is in terms of its usefulness. I can't think of any other ways to account for it. Yeah, I I think yeah I yeah I do disagree. I think I think maybe yeah um probably won't do it now. But it, I think there are cases where I could show you more compellingly the obviously moral nature of uh, knowing. Mm-hmm. 
is that something you wanted to do now or is that just like you think that that would be a further <laughs> thing to discuss um at some point <laughs> yeah i'll i'll come I'll, yeah i'll try to come up with oh okay better example yeah that's a good sometime. idea i think that this is analogous to some other things like for example freedom and security where or sorry not security but uh privacy where we think of these things like freedom is inherently valuable, you could say. Or you could pose this similar sort of question, which is like, well, is it just that we think it's valuable because we've evolved to treat it as valuable because it had good consequences? So if we ignore that uh, bias, then we should really only judge it in terms of its usefulness. I think you're, yeah, you're... Uh, kind of equating the idea of something evolving um, as a result of, you know, this evolutionary process as the same thing as saying, therefore, this thing has no value on its own. And I, I think that's another place where I disagree. I think just because the moral value of privacy or freedom is a human I mean, all you're saying is, you know, it's a human thing, right? It evolved along with humans. I, I think that doesn't take away the intrinsic moral worth of those values. Oh, okay, yeah. I can see the way that you're interpreting my argument that I don't mean, so I can clarify that. So it's not that it isn't valuable because it was evolved. It's that the the fact that we have this evolutionary explanation accounts for why we treat it as valuable even if it isn't so it opens uh, it at least opens up the possibility that it isn't valuable yet we still treat it as valuable uh, because i mean i yeah so i get i think yeah i don't think it opens up the possibility at all so mm, I, I mean okay I think that's okay. Maybe another would. I mean, well, still a disagreement. But I, yeah, I don't see. I, I mean, I can see the appeal of that. Like, if you can explain something in this way, then you can kind of explain it away. I guess. But I disagree. Oh. The reason why I, I come at it from this approach is that. If I wanted to even entertain the possibility that, for example, knowledge isn't valuable, or at least doesn't have any inherent value, then I have to first answer the question, why do we think that it has inherent value? Right? The onus is on me to show that that is a wrong idea. I, I don't, I mean, I, I disagree there. <laughs> I think the explanation is just separate from um, the idea that it's valuable. I, I think the idea that it's valuable is prior to it, to the explanation uh, for people. Hmm. I, this is similar to our disagreement about morality. Mm, yeah. I, I think I'm starting with these examples where um, intuitively, knowledge does have, you know, intrinsic moral worth. And then I, I think you're starting from this intellectual framework. 
um, where, you know, through the framework, you're explaining everything else. And then, you know, in that framework, knowledge isn't intrinsically valuable. But I think, you know, I, I think I, I'm saying regardless of, like, whatever framework is true, it has to kind of accommodate the basic intuitions that I have. Um, it, I think that that's a good starting point, but if I can give accounts for why they seemed important, but actually, according to your deeper values, aren't, I think that's, that's also valid. I think that the uh, comparison to morality is apt in a few ways, but it doesn't work on some other grounds. Um, I've kept referring to usefulness as being a source of value, uh, and I think we would both agree that if knowledge is useful, that also contributes to its value. But useful for what is the question? Because uh, well, uh, I think well, just let me finish this really quickly. Oh. Um, so a hammer is useful for nailing in nails, but it's not useful for eating soup, right? So useful is not this objective trait that uh, is irrespective of the context. So when I say useful, I think what I've really been meaning is more like useful to moral ends. So maybe I should just replace that with it's a has moral value. And I would say that knowledge doesn't have any moral value intrinsically. It only has moral value in the sense of what it can be used for to do moral things. Uh, knowledge is only valuable uh, if it can be used towards moral ends. Yeah, there is no moral value just in having the knowledge by itself. But it seems like your position is that there is intrinsic moral value to having knowledge. Um, but I, I don't think that's... To some kinds of knowledge, yeah. But I think there's a lot, lots of trivial kinds of knowledge that are not morally interesting oh, yeah, that's, or valuable. That's a fair caveat, yeah. But but then if I have that caveat, then I think our positions are just the same. I mean, I think that morally uh, valuable knowledge uh, exists, and then you think that you you also you also think that some knowledge uh is morally valuable if it contributes to moral ends yes but you, there is a difference there right where i would say that a piece of knowledge that is in fact morally valuable is morally valuable only because of its ability to be used to do morally good things whereas you would say there could be cases in which it doesn't have those uses yet is still morally valuable Okay, uh, well, you're, okay, sure, I, I, I think your idea of morally useful ends, yeah, I don't get that, I guess, I, I think a more useful end, um, yeah, can be knowledge. Oh yeah, so it could be that knowledge is one of these fundamentally good things. And that's sort of the presupposition that I had as well, that 
knowledge is inherently good, essentially is what it is to say that. But the more that I think about it, the more I'm trying to understand the way that I think of knowledge as, useful, as good. And it seems like in most of the cases I can imagine, and in almost no cases can I not imagine, that it's good because of the uses. It's not just good on its own. So what would you rather be uh, a pig satisfied or Socrates unsatisfied? Um, if I was presented that option, probably the pig. Oh, well, I just don't believe you then. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Well, then that's not, that's kind of a conversation stopper. <laughs> Because part of being satisfied is a lot of things. Like, it's not just some, like, my mind goes blank and then I don't experience anything anymore. Uh, yeah, okay. I mean, it's a conversation stopper, but you have the intuitively implausible position that uh, people don't agree with. I mean, the quote is, it's better to be a... Socrates unsatisfied, right? I think that is the idea of the quote, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I mean I'm I'm just my position I, I, I guess I'm just saying that there's the idea is that uh knowledge has some value. Uh, on its own like that that's the idea of the quote and oh yeah i agree with that being the idea of the quote but i just don't agree with the conclusion uh, i don't agree that you don't agree with the conclusion <laughs> you think that i actually uh, wouldn't you would make that not decision? you would not you, i mean you wouldn't would you have said the same thing before we started this podcast uh, probably not, yeah. Okay, so, okay, I mean, this is just my point. I think you're, you're, uh, you're starting with your intellectual framework instead of your intuitions. I agree, yes. Okay, well, then it's a bad intellectual framework. <laughs> <laughs> it, it should explain your intuitions. Well, I think it does explain my intuitions. As in, they came from an evolutionary and societal process. Well, it says your intuitions are wrong. Yeah. Well, it says that your intuition that you'd rather be a, 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 a knowledgeable human is wrong. Uh, well, not necessarily. It means that if I was posed with that trade-off, then I would choose to be not a knowledgeable human. No, but I'm asking, okay, okay, is it a good thing to be uh, a man or a Socrates satisfied rather than a pig unsatisfied? No. Uh, but, okay, but what would you have said before, <laughs> before the podcast? I would probably have said that it would be good for you to be Socrates. Yeah, so, I mean, so I think 
So you are uh, saying that your intuition was wrong. Yes. Right. Yeah. Well, wait. I'm not quite. I think there's something that we're missing. Here. <laughs> the, the reason I'm, I don't think I don't feel like I'm missing anything. <laughs> so I think that I changed my mind. Yes. If, is that what you're asking? <laughs> Uh, yeah right yeah so through the conversation i posed reasons and counter reasons for these different positions and overall it seemed like the reasons against knowledge having intrinsic value were more compelling <laughs> yeah you, you i mean uh i think you confuse yourself with <laughs> lots of reasons when it's really simple it's it's good to be a man satisfied or Socrates satisfied. <laughs> and that, that's just that's just how it is. <laughs> uh I mean that's possible, but I don't see the reason why. Well, I I mean I'm going I I mean I would do it the other way. <laughs> I mean it is the case and then you come up with reasons why. Um I I think that that is what Instead you're of doing, reasons, but I don't not? think that that's a good way to do it. <laughs> because then you could just come up with any moral principle that you just happen to have an intuition about, and then say, "All right, well, this is just foundationally moral, so that's it." Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of things that I think are foundational that are moral and that are I couldn't be convinced of otherwise. Really? Like if I just walked outside and shot a random person, first person I saw, I think that would be a bad thing. And I, regardless of whatever intellectual framework I make up to justify doing that, I think it's just okay. obviously bad. But do you think there are other moral principles that you would be open to changing? Uh... Well, I guess, I mean, there's some cases where my intuition would be wrong at first. Really? Yeah. Uh, a case like how I had an intuition that I now think is wrong? <laughs> Not that one. No, it, it is a different intuition. <laughs> so you don't think you've ever changed your mind about anything having to do with moral principles? Okay, I think... Maybe the difference, another difference is that you're starting with principles and I'm starting with the cases. I I, I, don't, I think principles are, I don't know, I don't really know what they are, but I, I know that I'd rather be, that it's good to be a man <laughs> satisfied rather than a pig unsatisfied. And I, and I know that that's how I act and you act and humans generally act. Uh-huh. But humans also but, generally act in other ways that don't seem to be very good or very uh truthful you could say sure then we can talk about those cases but they're different cases right but the way that you've posted is that those are impossible right no no I, i'm saying it's impossible to come up with a moral system that is true and that rejects the obvious analysis of the pig situation. But, 
but why do you think it could not be that you're experiencing a cognitive uh, bias or something that makes you <laughs> conclude that judgment? How are you so sure? I guess I've thought about this scenario and I, I don't see that I was obviously confused about <laughs> some element of the situation. Like if it was something like, should I donate to, we've done this example a lot, like a local charity and then I do my research and I found out that I could, I'll say the charity is to feed uh, children and I find out online that I could donate to a different charity that does the same thing but much more effectively then clearly my original intuition that I should donate to this charity was wrong but yeah in the case of the pig situation I don't see that there was a misunderstanding like that seems like I just I got the situation right and then I had intuition about it yeah it does seem like that but I think that most of the time when you have a illusion or something, it seems obvious what the answer should be, but then it comes wrong. Oh, the pig is an illusion? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no. Okay. I think we're getting a little bit off topic here. Do you want to conclude and then we can... <laughs> I feel like we got way too deep into this random patch of weeds. <laughs> uh, Okay. I guess I'll try to come up with more examples like that. Yeah, I think this is a useful topic to talk about. It just is muddying the rest of the discussion. Uh, really? Yeah, because now we're talking about like, <laughs> principles of deciding how to treat things morally, and that's different from <laughs> the topic of knowledge. Like, this doesn't just apply that's, to knowledge. That's true. Yeah, that's true. And now that we've gone meta enough here, what's the meta-gnostic reading of the, the <laughs> Garden of Eden? Oh, wait, not even the Gnostic reading? Well, we already explained the Gnostic uh, reading. <laughs> God is evil and he tried to trick humans and failed. Um... I, I don't know. I be, I mean, I think the our, our reading is uh, a very conflicted reading. So <laughs> there isn't one reading. No. Well, uh, it's a uh, God. God uh, told them that um, eating from the fruit of knowledge um, is forbidden. But really, he said that in order because he thought that eating the fruit of knowledge was a good thing, and and uh, he thought if he forbid them, then they would definitely oh, yeah. eat it because of reverse psychology. And then he happened to be mistaken <laughs> about the fact that it's actually a good thing to eat it, and so they uh, humanity had its downfall. But actually, Satan is the good one the whole time. Because it turns out that <laughs> after a long enough time, having the knowledge is on that useful, so. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, I mean, I think Saiyan's the coolest character in that story <laughs> by far. Uh-huh. Everyone else is just uh, just silly. I don't know, he's, he's like calculated and... Where does Satan even kind of, come from? Does God create <clears throat> Satan? Satan used to be an angel and then... Uh, or, yeah, Lucifer uh, used to be an angel and um, he got too prideful, I guess. He was like the coolest angel, the head angel, mm-hmm. and then he thought he was too cool, so he got kicked out of heaven. But isn't, aren't angels like made of pure good and they have no free will? Like they can only do what's good? They're not even like sentient? Uh... Uh, I guess not. <laughs> Apparently not. Yeah. Yeah, and Lucifer took a bunch of. I mean, that's the story. Lucifer took a bunch of angels with him. I don't. Yeah, I don't know what the biblical source of those stories are, is, though. That's in Paradise Lost. Hmm. I, I don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't know how well sourced all of that is. Oh, oh. So you're saying that maybe but, it was just made up for that story? <laughs> yeah, but but it's. I think it's based. Christians seem to believe that they say that, so mm-hmm. it's doctrine. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's some basis. Oh, that sounds almost like a, like the telling of some old tribal story where there was like some tribe called Heaven, and then they had this prideful person, and they kicked him out, and he took a bunch of his followers with him. Yeah, it, yeah, like the next in line to like succeed the king and then he wanted to be king too early and let his own rebellion and then lost yeah 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 that'd be a good story yeah yeah i'm even paradise lost talks about um Lucifer being a very compelling character. Like, he's very cool. He's very awesome with the kids. Yeah, he's like Darth Vader. Like, <laughs> you know, by far the best character to come out from Star Wars. Uh-huh. Yeah, he has a tragic past and an evil presence. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Uh, this was a, a very unexpected <laughs> direction, but I think we can end recording. Okay. Ending now. 